0: hello and welcome to ruby rogues i'm john epperson and we are we have a couple panelists today we have luke hi welcome and we have jonathan Reining. Reining. your thing like cut off and gave me the dots right as i was looking at it i was like oh my gosh Reining, welcome Jonathan is the author or creator, however you want to say that, of Inertia.js. And we just have him here today to yap about it. Can you just give us a little bit, just to start out, about your background and how why you might be famous? And then we can go ahead <laughs> and get into Inertia after that.
1: Yeah, for sure. I am a web developer, and I've been doing web development for almost two decades by now. And I hang out mostly in the Laravel community. So I contribute to that framework and kind of like doing all things PHP. And yeah, my main project have been some libraries and some PHP libraries, I was also involved early on in the Tailwind CSS framework. If you're familiar with that, me and my buddy Adam Webbin built that. And more recently I have focused on inertia as well as a bunch of uh, database stuff. I'm I'm a big fan of databases and optimizing databases and active record. And so I put out a course recently about that. So those are kind of the, the things I mostly work on. I work for myself outside of that. I run a small SaaS business, solo SaaS, and that's fun. That's pretty much me
2: leveling up is important i spend at least an hour every day learning ways i can improve my business or take a break and listen to a good book if you're looking to level up i recommend you start out with the 12-week year as a system to plan out where you want to end up and how to get the results you want you can get it free by going to audibletrial.com code that's audibletrial.com code
0: Awesome. So since we were planning to talk about inertia, let's go ahead and dive in. What exactly is inertia?
1: Yeah, so it's always fun when you come up with a new project that's a little bit different than other things. It's a, it's certainly been one of the most challenging things. It's just explaining what inertia is. And kind of the simplest way to describe it is it's a way to build single page applications without needing an API. Meaning you can build a single page app using a classic server side framework such as Rails or... Or Laravel, and you can use classic server-side routing, classic server-side controllers. But the only difference is with inertia, there is no server-side views. All the views are done with view or they're done in React or done using Svelte. And uh, what happens is you basically return some data from a controller and where you'd normally return a view and output that data, you instead return a JavaScript page component. So just imagine a JavaScript page component being rendered on the page instead of like an ERB template, I guess, is what they would be considered in Rails. And obviously, that's client-side rendered, so it's not server-side rendered. But what happens is every single time you navigate from one page to the next, Inertia intercepts any page clicks so that you don't do full page reloads. But instead, when you click a link, Inertia will intercept that link click. And instead of doing a full page reload, it'll run off to the server making what's called an Inertia request. And the server will pick it up, say, okay, this is an Inertia request, and it'll fire back the data needed for the next page. And the data is the JavaScript page component, be Vue or React or whatever, and the data, the props for that component. And then what happens is client side, so that's made as an AJAX request that data comes back, that response comes back. And then dynamically, client-side, the page component is swapped out and that's using uh, dynamic components, which is a feature of all three of the popular client-side frameworks, Vue, React, and Svelte. So it's dynamically swapped out and it's given its new page props. And the big, big, big benefit there is, one, when you're navigating from one, so there's like three key benefits. One, you're navigating page to page, you're not doing full page reloads, So there's a performance benefit to that. Two, when it's doing that, because you're not doing a full page reload, it's not having to reboot, view, or react every single time. So it's like really like silky smooth kind of experience. It's just like a, it's like you're working with an SPA, except you're not. You're just navigating from one page to the next, and it's just swapping out those components, those page components dynamically. And three, and I knew this was going to happen. I don't remember my <laughs> third benefit, but oh, the th- third one's the obvious one. You get to build an app using client side technology and really kind of what pushed me down this road is I was building more like in my applications that I built and I build, I always use Laravel, which is very similar to Rails. So for this audience, just kind of think of them more or less as the same thing. I was, you know, much of my apps were starting to contain more and more like rich UI And more client-side functionality, more JavaScript requirements to basically make the UIs work a certain way that just kind of wasn't possible using classic server-side rendering. And what I was basically doing is I was in my page responses, I was returning server-side render view, which would then have view components mixed into the page. So what would happen is the response would come back from the server, then view would kick into gear and any of the view components on the page, there'd be like a little flicker and then they would show up, right? And then you'd have those individual components would be reactive and whatnot, right? And so by going, but that kind of comes with a whole bunch of interesting problems. I mentioned the flicker and just kind of having to manage each one of those separate components. So by going this way with inertia, you're really like fully committing to client-side rendered views. So you give up server-side rendered views. That is a that is a trade-off. But what, me, what that means is anytime you're working with any of the templates within your application, you have the power of JavaScript, you have the power of Vue or React, and you can do whatever you need to do. And it's just a really, really nice way of working. Yeah. So that's kind of a longer description. I, I would say that like I definitely built it for people who have traditionally worked with server-side rendered applications like frameworks like, again, Laravel, Ruby, Django, that kind of stuff. People who are familiar with creating controllers and getting data from the database and then passing that data to a view. The whole paradigm is very, very similar and much different than the classic, the more standard SPA approach where you have some separate API, some separate app that provides like a REST API or GraphQL API. So it's it's definitely targeted at that audience and kind of as i was i've said to people before i kind of joke that inertia is like the gateway drug to creating single page applications because if you're coming from a monolith background inertia just makes it so easy to get up and running with creating like what essentially feels exactly like a client-side single page app but kind of using the technology that you know and love already yeah
0: i actually find it super interesting i mean i've been for at least the past day or so, kind of checking out some of the stuff on the site and things like this. And there's a lot of interest. So it kind of sounds, just to make sure that I understand this the way that I think that I understand this, you're more or less going to, obviously being familiar with Rails here, you're going to create like this kind of high level sort of meta layout as you will or whatever. And then instead of creating a whole bunch of views for all of my pages, I'm just returning this inertia thing, which has a props attribute or whatever and then I'm just basically returning data as JSON. So kind of a bit like an inline API kind of thing almost. Like I'm just kind yep. of rendering JSON almost there. And that's more or less how my page is going to run. And that's how my backend is going to run. And then I basically just have a single page app on the page. That's it. Yep. And uh, all these props get passed down and I just do with it what I want to in that single page app.
1: Yep. So kind yeah, of so a couple, an
0: interface, as you will, y- if
1: you will. Yes. I, like, yeah. So a couple of things to be aware of. Like I like to compare inertia in a lot of ways to almost React router or Vue router because in a way, all inertia is is a specialized router, like client-side router that lives between your server and your controllers, which is returning data as JSON and your client-side page components. So it's the piece that connects the two. But unlike with a classic app, you know, with Vue router, React router, whatever, you don't have any client-side state management at all. So you're not using any client-side like VueX or whatever the React equivalents are, you're not using any of that stuff because all your data and all your state is essentially at the server. So it's not like you're making requests to the API client-side, saving that in your client-side's VueX library or, or, or database or whatever you want to call it, and then rendering components based on that. Basically, every single time you visit a page, the data is coming straight from your controller and going to your your client-side page component.
3: All right, I got a dumb question. You're going to have a few of those from me. So I wanted to kind of have a go at this, and I've been building this Vue app. And the way I populate my Vue, is it Vue or Vue? Vue. Vue. It's I the think. accent, isn't it? I can't. I can't <laughs> even tell. I think I'm trying to make it English. The way I populate my component is I go off the, my erb my erb template downloads and then I do a a get to get the initial data from the page and then it drops in when the get returns. You've got your view building uh, yeah. Now yep. uh, in the examples on the inertia js site, then it uses Laravel and we could take a nice divergence here because I'm starting to get Laravel envy. So some of the tooling <laughs> some of the tooling that you show off on the Inertia.js website i don't i don't think the ruby or rails community have th- i'm sure john know more but there's a there's a plugin where you can see the database queries being done on that page like the sequel and i saw of oh it would have been useful i mean for years if i could just see what the what the page was hitting you know does that exist for rails i'm pretty
0: sure i've seen various things and you can
3: definitely see it in your logs i know i know i can see it in okay. my logs but, you know, to have it have it there,
0: you know. Hang on. I mean, maybe I could go find this. I don't know if it's a good use of my time, but maybe I could go find this. But I'm pretty sure that I've seen something somewhere that does something like that. However, regardless, you do know that you can switch those Laravel things to Rails to see the the Rails examples on the
3: Inertia site. No, I didn't actually no, I didn't find a tab. Where's the tab? There's so every
1: code snippet, every code snippet there is on the site, it defaults Um, to Laravel, but you can switch it over to Rails.
3: Oh no, there's some basic fail going on here. No way. Ah, So
0: so what you're saying
3: is you're very
0: appreciative
3: of how awesome Laravel is on a Ruby podcast. Right. I'll be honest, this
1: is not the first time this has happened.
3: (laughs) That's a nice workflow, you know. I like the tool. Yeah, I can't find this thing you're talking about. I don't believe it exists. I'm
1: looking so at the, it right
3: now. I'll take a screenshot. <laughs>
1: yeah, so the, uh, the the tool in Laravel in the PHP community, it's called the, it's called the PHP Debug Bar, and there's a Laravel Debug Bar version built on top of that. And it's fantastic because it's, it's exactly what you can you know You can figure out all your database queries and your logs and whatnot, but what the Laravel Debug Bar does is it just puts them right in the bottom of your screen, just like a, it's almost like a, a Chrome console, right? Where it shows you exactly what database queries you're making and what models you're loading from the database. And how much memory you're using. It's super, super helpful. Helps you to identify N plus one issues and slow queries and stuff.
3: Where's my Rails debug bar? That's what I want to know. Moving swiftly on from my basic inability to use a website. So I was asking about the the way you hook it in. What does for, for the benefit of people who can't use a website like me, how does Rails send down that lump, that cop? Because there's two things, aren't there? there's the kind of layout and there's the, and the props, yes?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I'll walk you through That's I, I often fail to kind of explain this just because, you know, you forget sometimes kind of where to start after you've talked about something for long enough. But so what essentially happens, and I'll explain it as best I can kind of using Rails lingo, but I'm not super familiar with with it all but like work with me. So basically a request is going to come in. So through the very first time that someone hits your Inertia application, your Inertia Rails application, what's going to happen is it's going to notice that it's just it's a standard full page visit, right? And what it's going to do is it's going to hit Rails and it's going to see that it's not an Inertia request, so it's not going to return some JSON. It's just going to go through the normal flow and what it's going to do is it's going to return your base ERB template, so your layout file, right? And that layout file it's just like a standard layout file that has your head which is going to have the your script tags and it's going to have your style tags kind of just your standard layout. The difference is what it's not going to do is it's not going to so and keep in mind that someone may land on your app on any different page. It doesn't have to be the home page, of course, the index page, it could be any page in your application, right? So it's going to see that request coming in, so it's going to return or it's going to server side render that layout except the only difference is within the body of that server-side rendered HTML file, it's not going to have any page content. So the page content will not exist. So if you landed on, say, the user's page within your application, it's not going to have a bunch of HTML, server-side HTML generated and rendered. What it's going to do instead is there is a base div that it's going to, that you need to put in your base layout. And that's the div that your client-side application is going to mount to. So what happens is that base div, your client-side app, view, react, whatever mounts to that. But what happens is server-side, it passes this page object. So a JSON encoded page object as one of the attributes within that div. So I think it's called data-page is the page attribute. I should probably double check and know that offhand, but I'm pretty certain. Yeah, it's a data dash page. That's the attribute on the div. So imagine a div has an ID of app, which is what your viewer react app's gonna mount into. And then it has an attribute called data dash page. And the the contents of that data dash page attribute is just a string, but it's actually a JSON encoded string. And what it's including is all the necessary information that Inertia needs in order to boot up that particular client side page component. So it's going to include two main things. That the most important things to know are, one, the component name. So the component name is going to be the viewer or React component, page component name. So in this case, it might be the user page, which is going to have a corresponding user page.view file or, or user page.react file. And then the second piece of information that's going to be in that JSON payload is the props, which is the data. I call them props because they're considered, when you're working with Vue or React, props are the properties, the, the attributes, the, the data that gets passed to that component. In. so it's essentially the data so if you imagine now if we we hit the rails app it's the users' page which gets which causes the routing to go to the user's controller the index method of the user's controller your index method is going to go off and it's going to use active record to get some data from the database for the users that you want to display on that page and then in a classic rails app and jump in if I get any of the terms wrong here gents because I'm you know I'm gonna use more kind of the lingo that I know but what it's going to do is normally you would then return an ERB template that you pass a, the user index view to and pass the data, which is the users you just looked up from the database using Active Record. And that's going to go off and generate your HTML. In this situation, you would instead return an inertia response. So it's, it, and, But the, the clever thing about the inertia response is, so it's basically the exact same thing. You basically return inertia, you pass it the name of the page component, and you pass it the data. So the controller itself doesn't know if it was a full page visit, like a standard get visit, or if it was an, an actual inertia visit. Inertia takes care of that. All the controller has to do is to return the page component name, so the client-side page component name, and the data for that component. Then Inertia, behind the scenes, it inspects the request and says, okay, was this a full-page visit, you know, so where we need to display the layout, well, if that's the case, well, then we're going to display the layout, we're going to render it server side. And we're going to inject that base div with the ID of app and with the the data page attribute with all the data for it. And then we're just going to render that out as kind of just a standard HTML page, then inertia will grab that data and boot up the client side application. However, on subsequent visits, when inertia... So if you go then and click to a different page, maybe you click on one of the users, you want to view the user. What inertia does is it intercepts that click, that page visit... And it then makes the XHR request to the server. It's going to hit in the exact same way. Now imagine it's going to hit your user's controller again, but this time it's going to hit the show method. So again, what would you do just in a standard, layer or standard Laravel or Rails app is you would go off, you'd get that user from the database, use an active record, right? And then you would normally just return a response to show the, the user show page with the, the user data. Except again, with inertia, you wouldn't do that. You would do, you'd return an inertia response that would then have the user show page component, client-side page component component and the data, which would be the user data, maybe their ID and their first name, their email and their last name, and whatever else, right? So when that request comes through the XHR request, what inertia does is it passes through an X inertia header, which is set to true so that your rails app knows that this isn't a full page reload. This is, this is like an inertia request. So it's an XHR request. And what it does instead is it returns not the the full body and the full layout and everything else. It just returns the JSON data that it requires. So that's the same JSON data that would be put in the data page attribute. If it was like the full you know, HTML layout render kind of on the first visit, except it just returns the JSON and nothing else. And it returns that obviously as a JSON response, which that's going to have your component name and all your props. And then kind of getting back to what I explained earlier, inertia is going to then take that. It's going to dynamically swap out the client side page component with the new page component and dynamically swap out the the data, the props for that component and like service, or sorry, for the, for the user in the browser, it's going to look like you went to a whole new page. But the reality is it's just done some really nice magical work in the background to just kind of flip it for you. And then of course, like I said, Inertia is essentially in its simplest form, it is a client-side routing library. So it's going to update your, your URL in the browser and it's going to update the necessary page state so that you have like, you know, proper history and stuff. So you can navigate back and forth and stuff like that. So that's kind of like the trickiness that we do, but the reality is from a development experience for people who are using Rails or Laravel, who are kind of used to working with that, hey, I got a controller, I got a controller method, I got to get some data from the database, and I got to return a view with some data. It literally feels the exact same way, except the difference is you're ending up, you're working with Vue or React templates, you're not working with ERB templates.
3: All right, I found it now, it's super easy, and from, for the other kind of web challenge people who are listening, there is a gem there is a this is the this is the key component I was missing there is a inertia underscore rails gem that does it for you
1: yes yes I should have mentioned that probably too yes so you don't got to do any of this work this like I said when an inertia does all the magical work for you it's actually and when I say magical it's really not that it's not magical at all it's in its most basic form it's imagine this you have a, a page response the inertia gem looks to see hey was the xhr sorry was the x inertia header set to true well yeah if it is, then return JSON instead of HTML. It's like literally that basic. And there is, you know, some other interesting features that kind of go along with it, such as automatic asset refreshing and and partial reload. So it does get more complicated, but in its basic form, like I I tell people that if you didn't have the gem, like, so we do have an official Inertia gem for Rails, and we also have an official Laravel package for this as well. So it kind of just makes it really, really easy. But there's all kinds of people who are making adapters, client-side adapters for other languages and frameworks. And it's in its most basic form. It really does not take that much. We actually have a page that kind of explains a spec. I kind of call it a protocol because, in a way, that's really what it is. And as long as you implement that protocol, which is a very simple protocol, you can do this in other languages. I, I tell people I've literally seen this done. Somebody reached out and they had done this in Cold Fusion. I didn't even know Cold Fusion was still a thing but somebody has, wow. has created an inertia cold fusion adapter. And there's there, I know there's been one created for Django and all kinds of other frameworks now. The challenge for me as a library maintainer is normally in the past, anytime I've created libraries, I've always worked with the language that I'm familiar with. So I've worked with PHP and Laravel and it's not been that, or even JavaScript, and it's not been that hard making the, you know, maintaining a library. The challenge with inertia is I'm finding myself becoming more proficient in other languages and frameworks because in order to maintain The Rails adapter, I got to now be more of a Ruby expert. I'm anything but an expert. I shouldn't even said that, but like I got to know the basics of those frameworks. But fortunately, I've had some a lot of people kind of like jump in and help out on framework specific adapters. Really, that my job at the end of the day is managing the client side adapters because that's honestly that's really the hard part. The view. The React and the Svelte adapters are the tricky kind of piece because they're all, they kind of got little differences, the way they do dynamic component swapping, the way they do data handling, the way they do reactivity, all that stuff is, is a little bit different, each one of those client-side frameworks. So that's kind of like really the heart of my job. And even there, I actually have somebody who's helped on the project, one guy who's managing the, so I manage the Vue adapter, another guy manages the React adapter, and another guy manages the Svelte adapter. So that's been, it's really a, a quite a collaborative project in that sense.
0: All right, now that we theoretically know how to make an app with Inertia, why am I making an app with Inertia? Like what? where do you see Inertia kind of fitting into the space? And what kinds of apps are we using it for? Things like that.
1: Yeah, that's a really good question to ask because I think it's important. I think sometimes what happens is people come out with new projects and I think people like the idea of saying well this this, whatever this new piece of technology is this is now the one way to do all the things and we just like we want to like double down and fully commit to that for everything and if it doesn't do everything well then we don't like it yeah we get disappointed if it, if it isn't appropriate for all use cases and I'm generally like slow to say use the right tool for the job because I find quite often we're just most effective using the tool we know and that's tends to be what's worked out better for me I know that oh, I you know yeah I know that Elixir might be better or node might be better for Creating certain apps nowadays, but I'm just so stinking fast with Laravel that I just I use that because it's a tool I know and love. But I do I will say that kind of in response to that question, I do think that inertia is super suited, super well suited for some situations and not others. So the one that it's not well suited for is in a situation where it actually does make sense to make a full on API. So if if it makes sense for you to have a full REST API and a full GraphQL API, then inertia maybe not the right choice because with inertia the whole like my goal with this is to avoid you having to create this whole separate project, this whole separate API, figuring out all the authentication, figuring out all the OAuth stuff and all that hoopla and the separate hosting account and everything else. Like my goal is that I just wanna build an app, I wanna get some data from the database, use an Active Record, and I wanna spit that to a view and render it. Like that's what I wanna do with inertia. It's a like the very fast, classic monolith way of building an application. But if you did have a use case that you really truly did need an API so maybe you're building a web app that has an iOS app and, and an Android app, and maybe you have maybe you have uh native desktop applications or whatever. If you have that use case, then inertia may not be the right choice because it might just make sense in that situation to actually just go off and build that whole API. But in my experience, there's a ton of applications that get built. And I would say, like, especially like a lot of just like business level applications that never, ever, ever go past being a web app. That's what they always are. So, yeah, there is there a chance that it could eventually. Need an API, sure, but so often you don't need that. And, and you know what? You think about any application that's built with just classic Laravel and built with just classic Rails using classic Rails uh, server side rendering or Laravel server side rendering, you've already made that decision. You've already de- sa- said this is the web app. And, and if I ever need an API, well, then I'm going to go off and build a separate API for it. So that's really where Inertia fits. If, if you are planning and building a server side rendered application, you've already given, you've already said no to the API. So my thing here is I really wanted Inertia to be for those developers. Those who said, you know, I want to build a server-side application. I was going to build it with Laravel or I was going to build it with Rails you know, using the standard monolith approach. I've already decided I'm not going to build an API. Well, then Inertia is a wonderful fit because then it allows you to build a rich client-side application using Vue or React while still completely working within the paradigm, the monolith approach that you know. And you can be really, really, really fast with that approach. And in my experience as well, I have built applications that use Inertia as kind of the, the way web app tool. And even in those applications, I've have like my own application. I do have an iOS and Android app that I'm building right now. But the iOS and Android app is so simple compared to the web app because that's what makes sense for my business that I didn't even then, I still went in my Laravel app and I just built a really light REST API for my native iOS and Android apps. I still didn't need to fully double down and make my whole web app, you know, run on on this API. It still made sense to build a web app using, Rea- uh, using Reactor View and Inertia without an API, and then literally I have like five endpoints, five API endpoints for this core functionality that I'm making available natively. To, to iOS and Android. So I hope that kind of explains it. So that's really, I would say the reality is there are probably a ton of situations. Basically, anytime you are planning on building just a classic Rails application, that's a good use case for an Inertia app. If you have any sort of more interesting client-side needs and by that, and this is maybe the the last distinction I should make, I wouldn't personally use Inertia for anything that needs to be public facing. So that's, and the reason why is Inertia is still a client-side rendered Application, meaning it doesn't work great from an SEO perspective. Yes, Google is getting better at, at indexing, view and react apps, JavaScript apps. It is. And it probably only will continue to get better. But I think if I was building an application, if I was building a blog, or if I was building a news site, or I was building anything that had a public face that where SEO search engine optimization was a concern, I probably wouldn't use inertia because of that limitation. Really, I designed inertia for you know admin control panels, applications, you know, SaaS applications where you need to log login, all those kind of tools. And, and one great use case is I've done this as well, is you could absolutely say build a Rails application that's completely server-side rendered for your public facing pages, be it a, maybe you're building a SaaS app, and you have a bunch of documentation that you want to make sure it's SEO friendly. You have your pricing page and your about page and all those feature pages. You could build all that stuff using Rails with classic server-side rendering while still having the application in the background for the actual SaaS application be an inertia application, but that's only available after you log in. And that's a really common combo where you use server-side rendering on the on the front end and you use inertia and client-side rendering on the back end.
3: Can we talk about the flicker?
1: Yes, yes. So the simple answer is there is no flicker. No flicker at all. That's why it's so wonderful. So there was a flicker building it the old way. So the old way I do this. Is anytime I needed some view com- a view component or a React component in my application, I would be using classic server-side rendering in Laravel, which would return my full document, which would have the, all the page content. But somewhere in the page, so imagine it's maybe like a create user page, and maybe I want to create the, the form to create the user. Maybe I wanted to build that in view because I like the reactivity of it. I like be able to handle errors and everything else just kind of using that view approach, right? So maybe I'd have the whole page load, except the form itself would just be a view component that would boot up after the page loaded, right? And that's what I mean by a flicker that little thing takes a second to boot up because view has a viewed to boot up and it's minor like we're talking milliseconds but our eyes can perceive it and we especially notice it when that component takes no space at first but then if then it renders and it takes a bunch of space and kind of like causes the page to, to become longer and you, you know things move around and and you and if you have a lot of view components maybe you have a drop down component or a modal or different things like this that problem just becomes worse and worse where with inertia, that totally, totally goes away because you're getting exactly what you'd have with like a classic view or Rails or sorry, a view or React app where when you go to visit another page, it's going to just render that new view component and nothing's getting destroyed in the in between because you're not doing a full page reload. View and React are long living. So when I go to the next page, it's gonna load that file in the background. It's gonna load the data in the background via that XHR request. And then when it's ready, it's gonna swap it out. And you can, you know, there's lo- ways to have loading graphics and stuff. Frame between that, but the point is, nothing's being destroyed when you go from one page to the next. That's causing any sort of flicker. It's it's really really smooth.
3: So you you <clears> sound <throat> like you care a lot about kind of uh, responsivity and user experience. Yes, very much the, so. Let's talk milliseconds here. Let's let's talk some real numbers because I can I, we could take an enormous effort into kind of making this to help people improve the experience of their users. Let's face it, the whole point is to make the site nicer for the people we write the software for so What looks like a good load page for you?
1: Yeah, so my goal generally on a regular web app is 200 milliseconds or less. If I'm building a new application, that's really what I'm going for. Now, that's what I would consider like a typical server response. But as you know, there's more that goes into a website loading than just your server response. You also have your client side, the time that it needs to render there, the time that it needs to actually paint it on the page, the time that it needs to download and JavaScript bundles and different things like that. So yeah, for me, this is honestly, this is one One of the reasons why I like this approach so much is because I've I've been very frustrated in the past building REST APIs or even GraphQL. Now, GraphQL is amazing, but you can run into performance issues really easy with GraphQL. If you're not careful, you can run into N plus one issues just depending on the the, the sort of graph of data you're returning. It can be tricky from a performance perspective in real applications to have every response from your API be really quick. And that's because these APIs, especially a REST API, is, is generic. It's Generic because it needs to work for multiple different any application that wants to consume that that API. The wonderful thing about Rails and the wonderful thing about Laravel is that every single controller method you are going to get the data exactly as you need it for that page. There's no there's no generalized API there. It's like. Okay, I'm displaying the users page. I want to go to the database and I want to get these 10 users, if it's paginated, for example, and I want to get their name and I want to get their ID and I want to get their email address and maybe I want to eager load their company company along with it. So what what inertia and this isn't really an inertia feature, this is really just this is really just a Rails. This is like a monolith feature. It's like when each endpoint is only responsible for getting the data that it needs for the page that it's going to display, you can highly, highly optimize the data retrieval for those endpoints for exactly what's needed in that application. So that's one of the reasons why I really just like monolith apps in general, because I feel like that that approach just leads to fast applications. And I've talked, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier that I'm, I am I love databases and, and I love writing, fat, learning how to, you know, kind of make the most of the database, create proper indexes and return the minimal amount of data and the, run the fastest queries possible. That's, that's stuff that I'm super interested in and, and focus on. So roundabout way of answering your question, I like 200 milliseconds or less from response time from the server, which would be the inertia response. But then there's also this whole client-side performance side of things. So let me talk briefly about that as well, because that is absolutely a trade-off you get when you build a client-side application. So one of the trade-offs we've talked about already is the SDO trade-off. If SEO is important to you, probably not going to make sense to build a fully client-side rendered application unless you have some sort of server-side rendering in place. And and there's all kinds of fancy tools nowadays even to do that with JavaScript stuff. But you know what I'm saying? If if SEO is important to you, you're not going to want to have client-side rendering as your primary way. So the other trade-off is that you now need to send all that so all your client side views so all your page components all your view components or your your react components or your spell components they all need to now be sent over the wire as javascript bundles to the client right so inertia what it does and this is kind of like a really just i think a, a cool feature is it will automatically like it makes you can use because it is just really a plain old regular view or react app it supports code splitting so if you use code splitting what happens is you land on the very first page. So maybe, you know, going back to our example from earlier, let's say you hit for the very first page, the user index page. What is going to happen in an Inertia app is it's going to go and get whatever, only the minimal amount of JavaScript that's required to display that page. So it's going to get your typically kind of like your core bundle, which is going to have like Vue or react and maybe some like core dependencies that are used kind of by the you know all pages on the site. So it's going to grab that core bundle, which is small because it doesn't have all the pages through your whole application. It's just the core bundle. And then it's going to load whatever whatever components are required for that page. So it could be the, if it's the the user index page, it's going to go off and get the user index JavaScript bundle and download that. And then once it's downloaded, you never have to download it again because it's cached, right? The browser knows to not go off and download it again. So what that practically means is you hit an inertia endpoint, it's going to, it's going to only get the minimal amount of J- JavaScript that you need to actually display that page and it's going to get the minimal amount of data from the server because that's the way a, a rails app works and the page can load like loads extremely quick so I actually have a demo app if you want to try it out if, if you told the the demo apps called ping CRM which is available on the inertia Js website and you can actually you know click around this application and see exactly what the performance is like and I think like so it's hosted on I host it on Heroku, and I do that intentionally because anytime you host on Heroku, there's even a performance cost in saying having a, a one-off Linode or DigitalOcean, dy- you know, server. Because uh, one, for one, the the database is the Postgres database, which is not hosted on the same site as the actual web dino. So there's always a performance cost that comes with that, which often, you know, of course, makes sense if you want to have multiple web dynos and whatnot. So I've hosted it that way because I feel like that's a good representation of a real-life application. And most responses from the server come back in about 100 milliseconds. And I think, you know, that's a pretty awesome experience.
3: I've tried it. It is disgustingly quick.
1: That's what I want to hear.
3: For me, in the UK, it comes back in well under 100, well under 100, to the extent that I'm quite suspicious that you're loading the next page in the background without telling me first or doing some kind of dirty trick like that. Is it you know, actually and it's funny hitting that you the mentioned,
1: database? 100%. Absolutely, it is. Yep. Absolutely, it is hitting the database. And, and that's interesting you mentioned that because, because it is a JavaScript application. There is really some cool opportunities to even do stuff like that. So if you hover over a link for more than a certain period of time, go off and eager load that data. And even if you don't want to eager load the data, what we can do is eager load the next JavaScript page component that that, page, that link would require. So even if you are using code splitting, we can be smart about eager loading that next page component that you may want to click to. So yeah, there's that's a kind of the neat thing because it is ultimately a real view or ultimately a real React app you kind of get some of the cool things that you can do with those pieces of technology as well. I've been working on another feature that even allows you to do kind of like placeholder pages. So if you were to click on a, if you're on the user index page and you were to click on the user, like a show user page, I've got a working prototype where it could show kind of like a shell of the show user page while Inertia is still in the background, grabbing that data, just again, using a classic Rails controller show endpoint, and then swap it out when it has the data ready. And these are like, those. it's not necessarily something, so the Inertia, so the, the Ping CRM demo doesn't do any of that. But it's, I just think it's neat that if you had an application that you were that concerned about the user experience, and you just really wanted to show something right off the bat, when someone clicked a link to view a new page, that Inertia allows you to, will allow you to do that. It technically doesn't allow you to do that yet, but that's something I'm working on.
2: Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? I mean, let's face it. The only way you're going to know that is by actually running it on production. So go figure it out, right? You run it on production, but you need something plugged in so that you can find out where those issues are, where it's slowing down, where it's having bugs. You just you need something like that there. And Rain Gun is awesome at this. They, they just added the performance monitoring, which is really slick and it works like a breeze. I, I just, I love it. I love it. It's like, it's like you get the ray gun and you zap the bugs. It's anyway, definitely go check it out. It's going to save you a ton of time, a ton of money, a ton of sanity. I mean, let, let's face it. grepping through logs is no fun and having people not able to tell you that it's too slow, Because they got sidetracked into Twitter is also not fun. So go check out Raygun. They're definitely going to help you out. There are thousands of customer-centric, customer-focused software companies who use Raygun every day to deliver great experiences for their customers. And if you go to Raygun and use our link, you can get a 14-day free trial. So you can go check that out at rubyrogues.com slash Raygun.
0: Yeah, I certainly like speed, but I certainly don't get as excited necessarily as other people do about speed. But I know that a lot of people do care about it. I think the thing that's most interesting here is, so I know that it might be heresy, but I for a long time have have more or less said that, to me, the controller in MVC, right, really is an API provider, and you're just consuming that API with your view. And that's sort of like the typical way that people use it. And so I think that inertia like just kind of leverages that in my mind it's you're just leveraging that and making it really easy for people who who are just used to using views to just be like not have to think about it yeah it's an awesome evolution in my opinion
1: yeah i love that comment that that comment that it's just essentially an api it is the the difference is with a rails or laravel app you've accepted that there is this type coupling between this back-end controller and the front-end view that's just an accepted, Absolutely. you know. Yep and you know some people would say well that coupling's bad because now i can't use this endpoint for other things and i say no actually that coupling's awesome because one it makes it really fast you can create these these applications really quickly and you can optimize them from a performance perspective because you're you're only worrying about this one request. You're not worrying about 30 possible different permutations. It's just one request that you're concerned about.
0: Absolutely. Really, the only benefit to thinking about it that way is when you're suddenly ready to break the rules, right? So, yeah, awesome. Anything else that we should know about Inertia that you, you're just like, I haven't talked about this. You guys should be thinking about this.
1: Yeah, so, yes, there's maybe a couple different things that I think Inertia does really well and stuff that I'm maybe been approving on is one is scroll management. So what happens by default when you browse from one page to the next, just using like standard, normal, plain old website, and you scroll down and you visit the next page, and then you scroll down, and you visit the next page, you know, whatever, and then you hit back in the browser. The browser is smart enough to remember exactly where you were on each one of those pages, and that helps maintain context, right? Which is a, a really nice thing. Inertia allows you to do that because that basically is for free out of the box if you just do a standard page. But where it becomes tricky and this is becoming more and more common is people have what like essentially what are considered like scroll areas within your ui so one really common use case for this is imagine you have kind of like your standard layout left hand side is your navigation and the right hand side is your content and maybe along the top you have a bar right when you scroll the content you maybe want to scroll the content but not have your left hand nav change or maybe even the other way around maybe when you scroll the content you want your left hand nav to to follow with you or whatever right So you do this using scroll areas, you know, overflow auto and stuff with CSS to kind of allow that sort of functionality. And yeah, so that's a very common thing with like modern applications, especially I would say like, yeah, more application style websites. So that kind of like goes out the window. What goes out the window when you're using scroll areas like that is scroll position management. So if you were to do that, and you would go to visit the next page, and you go back, the browser has no idea that you were scrolled in this container down 300 pixels. It's like I don't care, not my problem. All it cares about is restoring the body scroll position. So Inertia, where we have support for basically automatically automatic scroll restoration of containers as well. And you can, and you don't have to. That doesn't happen to all containers. You can actually define on a per container basis, like Inertia track the scroll position for this, and that's like a really really nice feature yeah, that's that super you basically, cool. yeah. So that's one thing. Another thing that Inertia does really well is asset versioning. So this is a problem that a lot of people run into with uh, modern client-side rendered applications is imagine you have a user, right? And they go to your application, they go to your website, and they click through a few different pages. And while they click, you know, maybe they're on the user's page and then they're on the user show page. And right at that moment, you had to fix a bug or do something in that template and you redeployed it. So you redeployed those assets to the server. The problem is right now is with a typical client-side rendered application is that you now go back to visit that user index page because it's not doing a full page reload There's no way for the browser to know that maybe that user index page template changed. So they're going to see the old page template, which might be fine or it might not, because you might be expecting data from back from the server that's now out of sync with your template. You remember that type coupling that we're talking about between these two things Uh, and would be no different if you were working with an API. If there's an expectation for the data to be there and it's not, and that old template could now generate an error, the should application crash simply because you deployed an update to the application. And this is something that Rails and Laravel developers never have to worry about if you're using server-side rendered views, because when you go to the new page, it's doing a full page reload, you're getting a full page, all the new assets, everything else. So what Inertia does is we have like, and there's like, there are ways to solve this with client side, like classic viewer React apps, but the, it's complicated and they use people use service workers and I'm not going to get into the details of how that gets solved, but it's kind of complicated. Whereas with Inertia, what's really cool about Inertia is is that the front end and the back end are coupled together. So that's like, you know, this coupling that we keep talking about, like that's the real benefit because we can now let the server and the client-side frameworks, and essentially what it is, is it's a server-side inertia adapter working with a client-side inertia adapter, and they're working together to make sure that things are working properly. So what happens is every single time you make an inertia visit, we keep track of, you know what, let me back up before I even go there. It might be easier if I explain it this way. When you define your inertia setup in Rails, you have the option on every single page, like you know, kind of like does it does Rails have this concept of like some sort of like base like application service provider where you do kind of like default work? Could it like happen in like a middleware or just like kind of like something that gets run on every single page request? Is that I'm, we I'm do sure have Rails has middleware. It. Right. So imagine I forget exactly how the gents who put together the inertia Rails adapter did this, but just imagine that somewhere. In your inertia configuration, in your Rails application, you basically say, this is the version of my assets. Your assets being your JavaScript, basically. It could also be your, your CSS.
0: Yep. Rails does so, handle that, yep.
1: Yeah, so you, you have some sort of version number that indicates the current version of yes. your assets. Like in, the way I do it in Laravel is I literally just do, I just get an MD5 of the assets, and, and if it changes, it changes. So what you do is you say inertia version and you pass it the current version and that happens on every single request. So what happens then is that version gets passed to the client side. So that's one. So I've talked about this page object that, that gets passed around, which includes the component name and the props. Well, another another property in that, um, that page object is the the asset version so the client side inertia always knows what the current version of your assets are so then when you now click from one page to the next so you're on the user show page and you want to go to the user index page well you you click the user index page inertia goes off and it makes the xhr request the inertia inertia request to your server to get the index page and the data for the index page inertia automatically passes what it believes is a current version to rails then rails the rails inertia adapter says okay I got this request coming in. It's saying that the current asset version is one, two, three, but we can see now that it's a new deploy has happened and the new asset version is actually four, five, six. And what inertia does is it actually stops the request at that point, and it then gives, returns a four, I believe it's, I think it's, a, yeah, it returns. So imagine this an XHR request, gets an immediate, immediate 409 conflict response back from Rails. And then what happens is, Inertia gets that 409 conflict response back, and it says, oh, assets are out of date. So what Inertia then does is that, automatically does not an XHR request to that page. So going from the user show page to the user index page, it's going to say the assets are out of date because the server just told me that. And it just it cuts that XHR inertia request short. And it now does an automatic full page visit to the user index page. And then because you're doing a full page visit, you have an off, the opportunity to use cash busting to reload your assets and you're right back in business. So for the end user, it does mean that they'll have to redownload those assets, of course, but that's what you want because otherwise you wouldn't have deployed them. So they can continue browsing your Inertia app like a classic SBA until the assets are out of date. And then they're going to be forced without their... They won't even notice really that it's happening other than that, that request will reload the whole page and it'll look like a full page visit. And you're going to be right back in business on the page. And we do some smart things about the way we make that request, do that 409 response, and like we automatically reflash data. So if there was any If you had any flash data that was going to be used, it automatically reflashes that. So even though you're doing a full page reload, you're going to still get that flash data come available. So that's a really, really, really cool feature of Inertia that is like, I think it would be harder to do with a classic SBA, but because of the way that the client side and server side adapters work together, it basically takes all the work out of asset refreshing and asset versioning. Like you literally, all you have to do is tell server side, tell Inertia what the current version of the assets are and you're done and it handles it which is also really nice from a development perspective, because if you're developing, you're constantly changing your files and inertia. You don't have to like constantly hit refresh. You can just click a link and it'll just update automatically for you.
0: No, I agree. That is super cool. I mean, to be frank, I've been used to Rails handling asset management to me for so long that it is frustrating every time that I have to deal with it because I just, at this point in my development career, I just think that I shouldn't have to deal with it because.
1: I know exactly.
0: It, <laughs> I literally could not, I mean shoot we didn't even have that problem in Rails one because we weren't serving assets on the project that I was working on so <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, yeah,
0: it just it was so long ago
1: yeah and, um, and there's there's some really uh, the last thing you so the last thing I want to just mention about inertia that we kind of didn't talk about yet and is the fact that inertia visits are not limited to get requests so you can make inertia visits for post requests put requests patch requests and deletes as well and this is really cool and i it's kind of a complex thing to explain maybe on a podcast but what it does is it makes forms a lot more like classic rails form submissions except it's all done via xhr and it's like it's like the the most wonderfully simple thing ever so i'll explain kind of how it works real briefly here in Laravel and then you guys hopefully can kind of hopefully it'll make sense in rails as well so what you do is if you have a form say a view form with all the reactive inputs right and and then you then a user presses submit so to submit that data to the form you know, down to the server. In that situation, you would still submit that using inertia. So what you would have is you'd have a submit interceptor, right? Where you prevent the default browser full page submission. And then you would say, So imagine we we're on the create user page, right? And you hit create user, hit the button, the form submits, we catch it. And then in your JavaScript, in your view page component or in your React page component, or whatever, you would then say inertia dot post, if we're creating a user, yeah, post. And you would say, we're going to post that to slash users and pass in the data from that component. So it's just like literally a one-liner. But you don't then do a bunch of work after that. You don't say, well, give me the response back and let me inspect the response to see if there was errors. And if there's errors, I'm going to go and manually update the view, display those errors. And if there's no errors, well, then we're going to redirect to somewhere else. You don't do any of that. All you say is inertia post to the user's page. Then what happens is there's two paths. There's a happy path, the user was created, and there's the unhappy path there was a validation error, server-side validation error. So we'll do happy path first. User, You hit the user create page or the user store endpoint. So that controller endpoint to store the user. Validation all passes. It creates the user and then server-side in that XHR inertia request, you then just do a classic redirect to wherever you would have normally gone. You, you would If it was just like a regular standard full page application, you would just do a redirect to wherever you want that user to go after they created the user. So maybe you send them to the, the user show page at that point, right? So what you would do, you would do the same thing with Inertia. You'd literally just say, uh, however, in Rails or in Laravel, you return a redirect to that new users page. So then that redirect's going to happen in within that xhr request and what's going to do is it's going to go now to that show user page and that show user page is going to load keep in mind this is all happening within the init- inertia the initial inertia post request okay so that so that redirect's happening you're now landing on the user show page and it's just giving you a response but it it knows that it was an, in- an inertia request cuz that x inertia header actually gets forwarded on when that redirect happens. And then on the user show page, it just returns because it knows it's an inertial request, it just returns the the, the JSON payload back, which includes the, the page component name and the page data, which would be the show user page and the user data for that page. So that all then comes back to your create user page you know, that form and inertia automatically now dynamically swaps out the create user page for the show user page and passes the component. So you don't need to do any work to like redirect the user. It just automatically happens because you're redirecting server side. So that's the happy path. The unhappy path is validation fails and it essentially works the same way. The vali- the user submits the form via post, inertia post that goes to the store controller endpoint, the validation fails. And the way, at least this is how it works in Laravel, when the validation fails, it automatically redirects you back to the page that you're on. So Laravel, if I go to create a user and maybe it's missing the first name, Laravel automatically does a redirect back to the user page, but then includes some flash data saying, well, there was an error and here's the error, which if you're using server-side, classic server-side templates, you would then take that error and repopulate the page with your old values and display the errors. However, with Inertia, you get an Inertia response back. So what it'll do is it'll read back, redirect back to the Create User page, and it will pass along the all the data that you would have for that page anyway. So the Create User page, maybe there is no data because you're creating a user, but it would say it's a Create User page, and then it would have some data which is the errors that just happened. Those errors now get passed back to Inertia, and Inertia sees that we're on the same page still. So we went to the Create Post page, it failed, it redirected us back to the Create User page, but now we have this bucket of errors and what and but those errors have been provided from inertia as props so the page component doesn't change so there's no swapping of the page component so it's you're going to still be on the create user page but what it now has is the errors and all you do and those errors come through as props so they will you don't have to do any work to update as long as you're taking as long as your page component your client side page components design that anytime your page create user page component is rendering any errors that come through as a prop. It's just going to, because it's all reactive, it's just going to automatically display those errors. So like I said, this is a tough thing to explain over over a podcast, but the point is because it's all reactive because that's the way View and react and felt work, when that response comes back and has the errors, the props come in and they automatically update. So you literally it, it just ends up making for these really really simple forms because you don't have to do a whole bunch of wrangling to like figure out what the response was and update it. It just kind of all happens magically and because you're not doing a full page load you're not having to repopulate all that data that you put in so that whatever data they put into the form it's not like you're having to repopulate that because it's all there still because that page component wasn't destroyed it was it's still persistent there does that make sense
0: Oh, it totally makes sense. I think it's. I think it's very close to what what we would have in Rails, right? I mean, right, because Rails
1: does some magic with that stuff, right? Like it kind of like adds some stuff to your forms, some JavaScript stuff already, right?
0: Well, I mean, you if you have Rails, not not really. So the way that it would. T- okay, so if I just had vanilla Rails, right, I would submit my form, right. Happy path would redirect me to like a show page or an index page, maybe. The failed path, you know, I would come back, and what would probably happen is validation things that. Weren't weren't. Weren't there before would now suddenly be there because Rails is going to render that template and Rails is going to conditionally now render some new things. Kind of depends on maybe what gems you have installed, other things like that. But that's that's usually going to be what it is. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, it's really close. It's really close. Yeah, Um, well, that's good. Yeah, so. Awesome. I mean, yeah, I think I think the basic gist here that I'm understanding is that Inertia is going to make it pretty easy for me as a Rails developer to say, you know what, I have this maybe legacy application or something. Like I, I'm seeing a lot of use cases with already existing applications where I then want to sprinkle some view or some React or something on a page or two and and have it be a little bit of a spa there for a little while. That's kind of what I'm seeing. The major use case with Rails be, I mean, I guess you could design this with this in mind too. I don't see anything wrong with that.
1: Yeah, that's what most people are doing. People are upgrading like existing apps to use Inertia, but like most people are using it they're, it's kind of like greenfield projects at this point but that's also because it's a pretty new project
0: yeah segment things like that also yeah. always play into this stuff yep any any other questions mm-hmm. from you Luke before we kind of roll into picks here?
3: do we want to talk about GitHub sponsorship
0: sure why not so in, in the notes that you sent us Jonathan you said that you had started a GitHub sponsorship campaign you want to talk a little bit about that before we get rolling
1: yeah sure that's cool hey, I was just trying to think of interesting things that might be fun talking about that's kind of a bit of a newer thing Yeah. so this you know I've been working <laughs> I've been doing open source for a long, long time. And it's always a challenge working on open source, you know, justifying spending time. On it. if you're running a business and if you have a family and life's busy, it's difficult to justify committing large, large chunks of time to open source just strictly from a business or, you know, personal time management perspective. And so the, what I did with Inertia when GitHub sponsorships came out, I said, you know what? This is a project that I think has legs for the long term. And this is something I want to work on. But I've seen how much work tailwind CSS took and what it takes to make a really, really successful project, open source project. And I thought, you know, I want to try to monetize it in some way to help me justify spending a bit of time on this thing. So I put out the GitHub sponsorships and it was Really, I, I totally didn't expect much of a response, but I got over fifty over fifty sponsors, which is you know not an enormous amount of money, but it's you know upwards of about a, you know a thousand dollars a month, which was doubled, so it was like two thousand dollars a month from GitHub for a while, which was awesome. I think that's just I didn't know what to think of the GitHub sponsorship stuff at first. I'm like, is are people actually going to help contribute out of their own pockets toward open source? And obviously, GitHub. Believe that that would happen. And, and now, you know, it's, it's crazy what some people are are able to do with their GitHub sponsors. And it's, there's some people working on open source full time, making, making a lot more money than that on, uh, on their GitHub sponsors, which I think, honestly, is a really, really cool thing for open source. It kind of just, it's, it's recognizing the amount of time and effort it takes for, for people to work on open source and build quality software that, you know, it's crazy how the amount of, at least for me, I've, I've always worked in the Laravel PHP space. Like it's, it's all free software, right? And this is what we're using to run our businesses and everything else. And to me, it only makes sense that some of that money goes back, if nothing else, to just help people spend business hours on open source and not have to feel like they're they're losing money or, or you know running the issues with their boss because they feel bad working on it during work hours or whatever.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's pretty cool too. I, I do not think it's the end all be all because I think there's a limit, right? To, uh, if programmers are the only people contributing to open source, like there's, we're just not going to have enough money in open source. But I do think it's a definitely piece of the puzzle. I'm, I'm pretty so pleased with it myself.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I totally cool. agree with that sentiment. Yeah.
0: Awesome. Well, I'm glad that you were able to get some people to support you. So let's, I guess before we move into picks. If people want to like get a hold of you, follow you, things like that, how do you recommend they do that?
1: Yeah, so I'm active on Twitter. That's kind of like the go to place. It's just my last name, Reinink, R E I N I N K, on uh, Twitter. And I talk about, you know, all kinds of inertia and database and Laravel stuff there. So if you're interested, follow me there. And then uh, my website, Reinink. So same. Same handle, rannick r e i n i n k dot ca. I blog on there and yeah, and then obviously inertia if you if you google inertia js, you'll find inertia.js.com if you want to learn more about that project.
0: Awesome. We'll we'll make sure that those links are in the show notes too.
2: Have you thought about learning to do native iOS development? Are you using Swift at work? Or maybe you've considered writing applications for Mac OS. We have a podcast that covers all of that called iFreaks. We have a new panel and a lot of exciting things to talk about. So come check us out at
0: iFreakshow.com. So sweet. Let's go ahead and move on into picks. Luke, do you have any picks
3: for us this week? My word, do I have a pick for you this week? We were recently unlucky enough to uh, lose our server developer, who has been building our Kubernetes stack for us, and this means that I've been spending the whole week doing Kubernetes non-stop, non-stop Kubernetes this week. I have I had used it before back in 2018. But the Kubernetes is in a bit of a state of flux at the moment. So coming back to it, especially if you're kind of running on uh, Google Kubernetes engine or something, there's been a lot of changes. So my pick for this week is a book on Kubernetes. It's by... Another English man, the English IT mafia coming in here, and it's called, imaginatively enough, The Kubernetes Book. It was updated in February 2020, and it's been very helpful getting up to speed with the Kubernetes. Awesome. Any other picks for us, or is that, your, is that it for us? That's it. I'm not going to pick Kubernetes itself. Make of that what you will.
0: <laughs> uh,
3: that's fair. I'd have to push Chaplain if, uh, if you did. I feel like anything to make it easier. Do you know what we've got? To, we've got time for a quick rant here. here. We go Kubernetes, right? You're learning a your Kubernetes. You think, right? I've got my book. I've got my um, my my Docker Desktop. I'm going to go into settings and tick tick the box. I've got a requirement for Windows, so we're doing all on Windows. And if I say to I say to Docker Desktop, make me a Kubernetes cluster. Yes. Would you like to guess how much RAM this uses on my, my desktop machine? It should take a wild guess how much this ticking this little box cost me. All of it. It's it's three <laughs> gigabytes of RAM. And I haven't I haven't made any pods yet. I haven't I haven't run my app. It's just sitting there. It's eaten free. It's the first time oh, yeah. like this machine's cracked 10 gig. There's two sticks of RAM in this scene. And this is the first time the second one's had to wake up. Yeah, that makes
0: sense. The typical Kubernetes cluster, right? Cluster is you have a box that's just running Kubernetes, right? All the other stuff comes later, right? After that box. I wonder if, if your little ticked box right there is just spinning up the Kubernetes sort of, yeah. Uh, if you can see all the background
3: stuff. Yeah. It's all the, yeah. I found a box you can see what it's doing, but I mean the plus side, keep it positive, the the, the interface, the API is quite nice. It's not perfect, but it, there's some there's some things to like there. Declaratives all good, but that's that's been around for a while. The, the the language of it is nice and clean, so there's there's some good signs.
1: I'm a little confused though. I thought all Rails developers used Heroku, so why are you even on Kubernetes? Who uses oh, Heroku? So. <laughs> I mean, I, I <laughs> know, I
0: the... know that oh, there's lots of people that do. Don't get me wrong. I haven't. I've always been, I've always been very DevOps-like person, and and things like that. And so, like, I don't, because I don't get a lot of value out of it personally. But if you don't, if you're not really into that, I can totally see that.
1: Just a little. Uh, joke. Because I know I know that that's kind of like a big part of Heroku's background, right? A lot of I mean, Ruby yeah. Rails. I think they so, did. yeah.
0: They came from our community. So yeah, at least great. that's my understanding. Yeah, yeah. No, they're not bad. Just I'm not using them. Okay, I guess guess it's on me now. So the first thing that I'm picking today is we grew tomato plants like we do every year. So yesterday, our, our tomato plants have been producing for like about a month. And the average amount that I'm bringing in is a bowl full that's like about, you know, 10 or 12 inches big and like six inches deep. Like we have like, I don't know, like six or seven tomato plants and they go nuts. And it all is because we basically watched some YouTube videos on like, like how to like prune them and not like kill them and all these things. And so I'll paste them, I'll paste them in here. So if you're like totally, there's probably more stuff out there. There's probably somebody that knows how to like take care of other kinds of plants, but I'm definitely like pushing the watch some YouTube videos if you're if you're doing like some home gardening things, you know, especially if you're like growing stuff because it's like COVID and everybody seems to be into that this year, maybe it's a little late for you because maybe your growing season's passed, but definitely for if you keep doing it next year. So gardening videos, awesome. The other thing that I was that I wanted to plug here. So earlier in the session, Luke was like, hey, I don't want to have to go to my logs to for queries and stuff. Well, I did something looking during... Uh... Well, I'll tell
3: you why. I can reveal why now, because but blasted apps and Kubernetes, and you can't get at the thing.
0: Okay, maybe what I should give you is a link to a tutorial on how to read logs in Kubernetes, because that, that, I think, is your actual problem then. Alright, but <laughs> I, I actually, I couldn't find a gem that did that. But I did find some pretty sweet gems that give you all sorts of extra query, debugging, tracing to the exact spot in your code, explaining. So I'll just link those, because they cool anyway. So, yep, those are my picks. Jonathan, did you have anything for us?
1: Yeah, I didn't have anything at the beginning, but kind of as you guys were talking, I've come up, I've come up with three. One of them is, as I've mentioned earlier, a project that I was involved with is called Tailwind CSS. And this is a uh, kind of a unique approach to building, a unique approach to CSS and building applications that I would highly recommend to your audience to check out. It's become really, really popular and it's honestly changed the way that I you know handle CSS. I pretty much don't write CSS anymore because I'm using Tailwind which is if that's confusing to you then it's you should definitely check it out and I will warn you if you've come from like a SAS or a less background or just even just plain old css And you look at this approach, you will probably be disgusted at first, but it is really, really great. Give it a chance. And I pretty much guarantee you, you'll be making web UIs faster than you were before. And uh, the maintenance is wonderful moving forward because it's just a lot easier to manage because it's all in HTML and not in CSS. So pick number one, Tailwind CSS. Pick number two is... uh, I mentioned earlier that I put out a database course. Now I should mention that this course was primarily de- primarily designed for Laravel developers. Well, totally designed for Laravel de- developers, but there is a lot of a crossover between Laravel's ORM, which is called Eloquent, and Active Record in Rails. So there's some interesting techniques. So if you are a Laravel developer, listen to this, or just even a Rails developer who wants to learn some techniques about databases and how to make your, databases, your database queries faster. Check out my course, eloquent courseranicca which I'm assuming will end up in the notes. Yeah, so that's my second pick. And my third one is less, less software-related, but I live on a farm. And this week, I've so a little bit of background: I live on a farm, so I have wireless internet, which basically means that I have an antenna on my property that points to another antenna about two kilometers away for, from this internet service provider. And this year, the tree line between us and the tower that we point to is like really growing in. The trees are really growing in, the leaves are really growing in, and our internet's getting more and more unstable. So I've been pricing out some new hardware because it turns out that if I move my antenna about a hundred meters south of where my house is right now, which is out in basically the middle of my a field, I have a small little 50-acre property. So we have a bit of land. So I have the flexibility to move the tower. I get perfect line of vision to this tower. But the problem is I have to then get it from there to my house and my and my barn as well. So I've been playing around and been researching a bunch of ubiquity products and if you are in the same similar sort of position as me i can't recommend this stuff enough it's so cool i've been Playing around with a product called the Nano Beam, which are these like they're really like they're small little things, or maybe like uh, they're circular, maybe six or seven inches wide, and they're rated for uh, fifteen, I think fifteen to twenty kilometers. Like I only need it for like three hundred meters or something, and it just makes it really, really easy to create these wireless connections between like long-range wireless connections between different places in my property. So whatever, I'm just kind of nerding out on the ubiquity products right now because I'll,
0: I'll give you a plus one for that.
1: Yeah, you've worked um, with them so, before.
0: Yeah. So my a job that I had like over a decade ago. Um, one of the things that we did is we broadcast auctions and a lot of the barns that these auctions would be done in, they didn't have good internet connections. And so we were using wireless equipment all the time. And we swore by this by ubiquity. So just just saying that was 10 years ago, but but as far as I yeah. know, like you know, good stuff.
1: Yeah, it's it's pretty cool stuff. I actually have one already set up on my property between two spots and we actually had a wire, like a buried wire under the ground and it gave us all kinds of trouble. And then we put in a couple nano beams and it's just like, it's, it's almost like they are wired because that's what it looks like from a network perspective. And they just, they're, they just work flawlessly. So
0: that's my picks. Awesome. Alrighty. Well, thanks everybody for joining us and we'll see you again another time.
2: Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit
0: dot com to learn more.